How are those New Year's resolutions going, y'all? I don't know if you're the kind of person who makes New Year's resolutions. I'm, I don't make them in any kind of formal way. I don't write them down and post them on the fridge, but I still have them. And, and my suspicion is that for all of us, at the very least, you know, subconsciously, we, we know that the year is turning, that, that, that things are refreshing, that there's new opportunity. What's, what's old is going away, and now there's newness. And I, I think there's just a, a natural part of us, we can't help it, that we resolve. We resolve in hope that, that 2019 will be in some ways better than 2018. And of course, most of those resolutions revolve around us and what we can do to ma- maximize this new year and these new opportunities. And you know, a, a resolution, especially one that we keep, uh, can be very powerful, it can be very motivating. But something occurred to me this year, or just in the last week, I guess, when I, I was thinking about my own resolutions, um, that, that as, as far back as I can remember, all of my New Year's resolutions, whether formal or informal, have been very self-centered. I mean, they, they all, ultimately, they all revolve around me. And I, and I thought about it, and maybe you can resonate with this, I, that I want to, here, these are some of mine, I want to eat better, I want to exercise more, I want to be more productive, I want to spend less time on social media or what, less wasted time, I want to read more, I want to save up money. Um, even, even the spiritual resolutions that I tend to make year by year, I want to read my Bible more I want to pray more. Those, those things are typically private, personal ambitions, right? And all those things are good things. There's, no, there's nothing bad about anything that I just said. Those things will improve my life. They'll improve your life. But I don't know that I've ever, ever resolved to live my life for others. Every resolution that I make, that I tend to make, is more about what I see in the mirror and less about what I see when I look out the window, if that makes sense. Um, and I think maybe part of the reason for that is that I'm a sinner, that I'm just naturally bent toward myself. But then I think another reason that, that I'm like that, maybe you're like that, is because it's just easier to look in the mirror and try to fix what's wrong with me than it is to look out into the world and try to fix what's wrong with the world or try to fix other people's problems or deal with others, right? It's just easier to, to deal, deal with what we see in the mirror, right? But y'all, there's a, there's a powerful reality at work when we turn to the, to the Word of God. When we look in the Bible... That there's just very, very little in the way of scriptures that call us to self-improvement. Certainly, if we follow Jesus, things will improve. Certainly. But the, the, the chief emphasis when we turn to the Bible, when we look at the life of Jesus and the calling of Jesus, is not about Kyle's incremental year-by-year improvement. That there's a much greater thing that God has called me to, that he's called us to, that's less about what we see in the mirror, ultimately, and more about what we see when we look outward. And I think that what we see today in John chapter 4 will bring that home for us. The reason I like to preach John chapter 4, we preach it probably two or three times a year, honestly, is because it is the anchor verse or the anchor scripture for Harvest Church. Whenever I turn to John 4, and it was in our reading plan just the other day, whenever I turn there, I'm reminded of why God called us to plant this church in the first place. The name Harvest comes from John chapter 4. This idea, this desire that God has planted within us to spend our lives not just on trying to improve ourselves or hoping that God will make things a little better year by year, but that we'd spend our lives for his purpose and his mission and not spend it on ourselves. So this is, for me, this year, this week, a challenge 
And I, and I pray and hope, honestly, that it's a challenge not just for me, but for all of us as we look at the words of the Scripture today. And so something that I need personally, something I suspect that you need, is to maybe revisit our resolutions and ambitions for 2019 today. None of them, I'm sure, are bad. But you might have missing what I typically have missing, which is the mission of God for our lives, which is the most important of all. So John chapter 4 tells us this story. It's a very famous story. Jesus, uh, what Randy read for us, the beginning, probably one-third of the story in John 4, Jesus and his disciples are visiting a foreign land. They're in Samaria, which typically Jews avoided. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they stop, Jesus stops at the well right outside of town. This is the well that the town would have come to draw water from. And it's lunchtime, so his disciples go into the city to gather food. And they're going to bring food out, have a little picnic by the well. Jesus is there by himself. Uh, For whatever reason, from a disciple's perspective, he was probably very famished, very tired, so he stayed. But Jesus had an intention that we couldn't see in the moment. Because as soon as the disciples go into town, a woman, just one woman, comes out to draw water from the well, and Jesus begins having this conversation with her. Now, y'all, that, it's, it, for, for us, the lead-in to the story right there may not sound all that unique, but it's actually quite scandalous what Jesus is doing right here. And the woman, it's not lost on her. When, when, as soon as Jesus speaks to her and asks her for a drink, she asks him, what are you doing talking to me? It wasn't lost on her. See, there were some, some very entrenched cultural rules that dictated how people related to each other in this time and place. Three of them in particular, Jesus is breaking in terms of breaking the rules right here. Three things. First, what we see that the woman acknowledges um, is that, uh, that there is a Jew, Jesus, speaking to a Samaritan. John tells us in parentheses, he says, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans in those days. There was a deep racial divide between these two people groups. Jews avoided Samaria and Samaritans at all costs. They typically went around the countryside, if at all possible. And secondly, Jesus is a man speaking with a woman. Now, of course, that doesn't seem strange to us now, but in this time and place, men did not speak with women they didn't know. That was considered very improper. And in fact, there would be an assumption oftentimes of something uh, nefarious going on here. What's he after? What's he looking for in speaking to this woman at the well? Um, For some some cultures at the time, the well was a pickup place. Uh, It's like going to the bar. You went to the well, okay? Um, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is an improper conversation that's being had right here, men to women. And then thirdly, Jesus is a religious leader speaking to what we find out is an actually a very immoral woman. This is a woman with a very checkered past, and even presently she's living in a way that doesn't align with God's word, God's law. And Jesus, at, the, at this time, Jesus, a self-respecting religious leader, typically wouldn't have talked with somebody so low down on the moral ladder, Right? because she doesn't measure up. Now, those are all cultural realities, but Jesus, of course, has no concern for those things. He busts through every barrier in having this conversation with this woman, and he very quickly gets beyond chit-chat. He asks her for a drink, but then he turns right back around, and he offers her a drink. He says, if you, knew who were, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you what he calls living water. She's very confused. She doesn't understand what this kind of water is. And so Jesus reveals it to her that anyone who drinks of the water that I give him, that he will have in him or in her a well, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's offering her salvation in this moment. And then he tells her that he's the Messiah. 
She says, when Messiah comes, he'll explain all these deep things, and he says, the one speaking to you, I am he. Very dramatic. Well, that's when our story really picks up. That's all just background information for what we're really going to talk about today, which begins in verse 27. So I hope you didn't close your Bible already. If you've got John 4 open, I want you to look with me at verse 27. Here's when the action, at least for our purposes today, here's when the action begins. The woman is having this conversation. Jesus has revealed his, his true nature. This is who I am. I'm the Messiah. I've come to save you. And that's when the disciples toddle back up to the well with food. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. Remember the cultural rules at work here. Yet no one said to Jesus, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men there, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went, the men went out of the city and were coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Uh, we see the disciples are shocked to see what's taking place here. When they return to the well, they find Jesus with a strange foreign woman, and they can't believe that he's talking with her. She gets up, as soon as they arrive, she gets up and rushes back into Sikar, where she lives, and she tells her neighbors about this encounter. She doesn't keep it to herself. She implores them, you've got to come out and see this man for yourselves, this man who told me everything I've done. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? Well, that's an astounding claim right there, even for a woman who was probably in her culture very discredited and shamed. Could this be the Christ? They drop everything they're doing and they come. They're not going to risk missing out on this. Well, the disciples are, you know, the woman leaves and the disciples are taking bread and trying to shove it in Jesus' face. They're imploring him to eat. Surely he's famished. He's got to be hungry. But Jesus refuses the food. And he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, the disciples didn't know what he meant. And just by itself, of course, even us, as we read over their shoulders, we might know what he means either. But here's what Jesus is saying right there. That's not a famous scripture, but Jesus is making a declaration right there. I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is explaining to us in this moment the central purpose for his life. The very purpose for which Jesus came into the world to begin with. He's talking about it right here. This is my central mission. I'm not sustained by bread. That's not what gives me life. That's not what animates me. Jesus is saying, I am filled. I am driven by doing the will of of my Father, of doing, achieving, finishing the work that he's given me to do. Okay, so what is that work? The disciples don't know. We don't know. Jesus elaborates. Look at verse 35. Now, interestingly, he doesn't change the subject here. It appears that he's changing the subject, but what he's doing is he's bringing the disciples in on his work right here. Listen to this, verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
For in this case, the saying is true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, and others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? He's mixing metaphors, right? Uh, With the woman, he's talking about water. With the disciples, he starts talking about food. I've got a food that you don't know about. And then he transitions now into agriculture, to harvest. What's he doing here? When Jesus talks about the harvest, this is not the only place in the Gospels we see it. Jesus is talking about not something agricultural and physical. He's talking about something spiritual. When Jesus says harvest here, we understand what he means. He's talking about the world. He's talking about the people that he has come to save. So when Jesus uses that term harvest, the idea behind it is these are the many, many, many people who will come to faith in me and who will walk as my disciples. And now Jesus, you notice this, he's talking originally about his own mission, his own food, but he immediately connects it to the disciples' mission as well. You notice this? He doesn't give the task of sowing and reaping chiefly to himself. This is what I've come to do. We know that. But no, he says, I've given this task to you. He, he, he basically says to the disciples, I'm turning you into farmers, spiritual farmers. You're going to do the sowing and the reaping for this great mission that God has brought me to earth to accomplish. Okay? So, so think about this. When we're talking about a, 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 a physical crop Natural agriculture. I don't know what I'm talking about, by the way, okay? So this is all Google, Google uh, supported here. Um, but if you're, if you're a farmer, if you grew up in a family of farmers, you know this, that you don't harvest all the time. You sow the seed, you plant the seed at certain seasons, right? And then there's a time that there's really nothing you can do. Perhaps you can, you know, contribute to the health of the soil, but you can't make the sunshine, you can't make the sky rain. There's a waiting period until the harvest comes, And basically, generally, there are two harvest seasons per year. There's one in the spring, and there's one in the fall. You don't harvest in January. You don't harvest in July, not typically. But Jesus is talking about something different. He's not talking about physical harvest. He's talking about a spiritual harvest. And you notice what he says. He doesn't say, ah, this spiritual harvest is yet a far way off. It's it's four months away, as it is with a physical harvest. He says, no, lift up your eyes and look that the fields are white for harvest. The harvest Jesus is talking about right here is not something that for us is a long way off or somewhere far away geographically. He says, lift up your eyes and look that it's here right now. That the spiritual harvest is always opportune and present for you. You know what's interesting about this? Uh, A lot of commentators have made this point. I, I, I think it's probably true. Remember what's going on right now. Jesus is talking with his disciples, but meanwhile, this woman has gone back into town and has implored the men of the town to come out and see Jesus for themselves. They drop everything and they're coming, right? Well, Jesus says, lift up your eyes to his disciples and look, the fields are white for harvest. It's entirely likely that in that moment, he is turning their attention back toward the town where these people are coming toward them. Literally, right then and there. That he's saying, not just theoretically, not just metaphorically, lift up your eyes spiritually. No, no, no. Literally, look up and see that the spiritual harvest is walking in our direction even as I'm speaking to you. And so when Jesus calls uh, his disciples into the harvest, you notice this, it's not a separated out mission. He's not saying, I came to fulfill the mission of God and here's a side mission for you to participate in. No, he brings the two together. He says, my Will uh, my work, my food to do the will of my Father 
is connected in, it's enmeshed with what I'm calling you to do as well. That's why he says, verse 36, he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. You notice what he's calling the disciples to do. He's not saying, I'm going to do all the heavy lifting for you guys and you're going to kind of skim the cream off the top. What Jesus is actually saying is here, as I came to do the will of the Father to save the world, right? Something we can't do, only he, only he can do. But he's saying, I'm sending you out to do the heavy lifting with me, the sowing of the seed and the reaping of the harvest. That's your mission also. When Jesus says sowing and reaping here, y'all, very simply what this means is sowing the seed means pointing people to Jesus. It means sharing our faith so that others might see Christ. Reaping is the privilege that we sometimes get of seeing them actually come to faith and become his disciples. That's, that's all that sowing and reaping means right here. But I, I just want you to see the connection that when Jesus talks about himself, he immediately connects his disciples to it. He doesn't say, I came to do something very important and you should follow me and get in on it. Right? No. He says, if you follow me, you're in and you're going to be instrumental in the achievement of what I came to do. So the connection is clear. When Jesus says, my food, my necessary food, my very mission and purpose for life is to accomplish God's will and his work, the work for which he sent me to the earth, what Jesus is saying is this, I came to save sinners, and I came to include you in that mission. Not just that I'll save you, but that I'll make you part of the process of pointing people to me and seeing the harvest come to fruit. This is an amazing thing. When Jesus was talking with a man named Zacchaeus, Jesus gave his mission statement. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That applies to every single person in this room. None of us were born Christians. We were, at one point, lost in our sins, separated from God, and in need of salvation. Jesus came to earth to accomplish that salvation on our behalf, to make us God's children, to grant us forgiveness of sins, and to give us life eternal. That is the exclusive work of Jesus Christ. Only he can do that for you. But now having received it, you see what Jesus says? Now I send you into the great harvest to participate in the work that I came to accomplish. That's why he says, lift up your eyes and look. It's here. It's now. And it's yours to play a part in. If God has made you a Christian by his grace then he has also made you a missionary. That doesn't mean that you go to far-off places necessarily, but it does mean that you are now carriers of this gospel grace that is meant to be shared with the world. That's why Jesus says, it's in front of you, it's here, it's not somewhere else, it's not a long way off, it's here. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road for me, something that I, I talked about at the front of this message. That if I am a participant in salvation, meaning I have received the grace of God, to save me. I hope that's true for you too. If I am a recipient of that grace and Jesus turns to me as his disciple and says, now I send you out to sow and reap, then the question I have to face when I look at my, uh, at my life, I have to ask myself this. Am I, am I trying to live a life that, that merely enjoys the benefits of that grace and does not step into the mission that that grace calls me to live out? Am I the kind of person 
that makes resolutions that are strictly self-centered, and I do not resolve and make it my ambition to bless others with the gospel and the grace of God? Am I building a house full of mirrors and no windows? Does that make sense? And y'all, truthfully, I mean, I, so often, even as a pastor, it might come as a surprise to you, but this is, this is the truth for me. Is so often I'm fixated on me, and I forget that what Jesus has called me to is something so much greater, more eternally significant than me, than I'll ever be. And so if we are products of the harvest, if we've been saved, then the natural implication, Jesus' clear command is, you go. When Jesus saves you, he delights to send you back out to engage in the mission that he came to fulfill. You get to be a part of it. All right. Um, so how does this apply to 2019? You know, we're all, we're all in a resolution state of mind, perhaps. I don't know. What if you said this? Let me, let me make it a little more down to earth. What if you said, like a lot of us say, I've said this at least to myself, I want to simplify my life this year. My goodness. I want to get, I want to stop mindlessly spending time on my phone. I want to stop binging on Netflix so much. I want to spend less time on social media. I want to simplify my life. I want to get the noise away. Okay? Maybe that's something that's come to your mind recently. Well, the question becomes, oh, is that a good thing? That's a wonderful thing. That's a, good, that's a good resolution. But the question becomes this. If I'm eliminating the noise, the time, the, the waste right, that I know is not good for me, what am I replacing it with? Am I, am I simplifying my life for the purpose of more deeply and devotedly engaging God's mission for my life? Or am I simply trying to restructure things so that I'll have more free time? And see, there's a difference there. If, if I'm trying to simplify my life simply because I want to improve myself or sleep better or whatever it may be, y'all, that's fine. But that's not hitting the mark that Jesus calls us to at all. See, what, what, what I ultimately try to do, if I'm trying to simplify, I'm trying to get rid of this, I'm trying to do more of this or do less of that, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to improve, right? And, and I do the same thing spiritually. I want to read my Bible more. I want to pray more. Y'all, that's wonderful. We should all want to do those things more. But if all I'm doing is thinking, how can I squeeze a little more Jesus into my life, into my busy schedule, into my calendar, then I'm never actually going to get to the mission of God. Because all I, listen, y'all, all I really want in that case is I want a little more Jesus, but I don't want all of him. I don't want all of the, the Jesus that would call me into a life that's lived not for me, but for others. I, you can't just squeeze a little more of him in. He, he doesn't work that way. He won't work that way. We end up using him for our own purposes. I'll use Jesus to try to improve a little, but I'm not really following him with abandon. And that's what he calls us to do. And so the question, we have to reorient the question here, the resolution, the ambition. The question can't be for me. It can't be, uh, how can I squeeze Jesus a little bit more into my calendar? Now the question has to become, how can I build my calendar around Jesus? and his mission? How can I build our budget around Jesus? How can I build my life in such a way that, that it reflects who he is and what he's called me to? I can't just seek incremental improvement from him. That's not, he's not going to play that game with us. He wants everything. Does my life reflect a harvest mentality where I want to follow Jesus into the great work he's called me to? Or does it reflect a a self-directed mentality. I just, I just want him to help me get better. Y'all, I, I, would, I would suggest this to you. You will get a lot better if you follow him into his mission. 
the, 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 the betterment of your character, of your devotions, of your affections, those things will come naturally if you, if you live in the mission of Jesus Christ. Okay? I believe that with all my heart. But if I just seek him for improvement, then, then I'm going to be having this same conversation next January and for the rest of my life. Okay? Um, can I share with you guys a, a confession and a resolution? This is, this is Kyle's. This is free therapy for me, okay? Y'all just help me out here. Be patient with me. Um, I'm not saying this to, to make myself into anything. I'm just saying this because I need to say it, and it's true. For a long time, here's a problem that, that I struggle with. For a very long time, um, I have made an idol out of my home. Uh, I, I would tell you up and down, I tell you all day long, that my house, our house, our home, is a gift from God. It came from God. Of course it did. But I don't treat it that way. I don't, think, I don't really think about it that way. I think about my stuff as mine. And y'all, I delight at the end of the day to come home, to click the garage door behind me, and to be done. Okay? Some of y'all know what, know what I mean. We're tired. The house might not be clean. The kids might, you know, may have had a bad day or whatever. I'm, we're done. We're done. And it's my house, and I have every right to act that way. Right? Um, but y'all, I, I, I continually see when I open up the Bible, especially the New Testament, a call, a, a call and an example to something that the Bible uh, calls hospitality. And in fact, religious leaders, uh, in this case elders, what we, what we call our leaders at Harvest Church, elders, one of the chief character qualities of an elder in the Bible is hospitality. And hospitality, from a biblical perspective, means that my house and my stuff is not mine, it's God's, and it ought to be used for God's purposes and God's mission for the world and not just for my privacy and my comfort. That my house does not belong to me, that it's God's and it's for God's kingdom. And so our family has, has made a commitment, and I'm sharing it with you honestly because I need the accountability. All right? Um, this is a, it's a resolution. I guess it really is. It's, it's, um, it's something that's hard for me. Uh, it's hard for me because I'm an introvert, sure, but it's really hard for me because I'm a sinner and because this is going to destroy a lot of my comfort. Okay, um, we're, we're devoting ourselves as a family weekly to inviting people over to our house to share meals with us. Okay? Now, on the surface, you may say, big deal. That's, that's, that's not a resolution. That's easy. Well, not for me. And for a lot of us, I, su- I suspect it's not easy for us either. But here, here's where the rubber meets the road, honestly, for me. That we are, as a family, we're going to intentionally invite people over consistently to our home, not just our best friends, not just people who are, who are, who we've, who known for a long time and it's easy to be around. No, we're going to invite, hopefully, as we go, we're going to invite strangers to us over into our home to spend time with us, uh, in our sphere, on our turf. We're going to refuse to worry constantly about the cleanliness of our house, which is a big worry for me. I, I want people to think my life is perfect and all together. And that's an excuse as to why we can't let people in because then they'll see the baseboards. We're just not going to do that anymore. Okay? Um, we're going to refuse to worry about how our kids might act or what they might say or what they might do when people come over. We're going to refuse to overschedule our activities in such a way that would prevent us from being able to sit down and have meals with people. And we're going to commit to share our family devotion. When people come over, we're not just going to enjoy a meal, as good as that may be. We're going to, we're going to share Scripture and engage in the devotion that, uh, that hopefully people who spend time with us would hear and maybe even see a little glimmer of the gospel of God's grace when they're around us. Okay? 
Now, y'all, that again, I, as I'm saying this, you may think that's, that's not hard. But for some of us, for me, it is. It's hard because, listen, it's going to increase our grocery bill. Seriously, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to challenge my comfort zone. It's going to challenge that desire that I have to close the garage door and be done with the world. Right? Y'all, listen, there, there, we're all tired, I know. And that there's an appropriate time to really disengage and rest, right? But there is a level, I speak for myself personally, there's a, there's a point at which it becomes selfish and sinful. This is mine, and no one else can touch it. And I, I just, I, I pray by God's grace that I'd stop living that way. And so this is a resolution that's going to help us, I, I hope, to break through that barrier here. Uh, this confronts my idolatry. It's not my stuff. It can't be my stuff. God gave it to us as stewards for the sake of others. So here, here's what I, I just, it, for all of us, if God has called us into the harvest, and he has, I mean, I think it's clear from John 4, he's calling his disciples to see the world as harvest, that Jesus is making it really clear for us that the harvest is not uh, a potential mission trip somewhere down the road. Surely that qualifies. Surely that's wonderful. But when Jesus says the harvest is here, he says, lift up your eyes and look. It's right in front of you, which has to mean for us that it's in your neighborhood, that it's within your family, that it's in your workplace, it's in your school, it's on your team, in whatever circles of influence God has granted to us, that the harvest is, is plentiful and it's here right in front of us. And so I don't know how you might apply that to your life in 2019. The call of God into the harvest, the call of God to not merely look into the mirror for self-improvement, but to look out the window to see God's call for you into his world. I don't know what that might look like. I want to encourage you in this, that if you don't know what it looks like, that you, you would adopt uh, our resolution, that you would, that you would take on the, the mantle of what, what I call gospel hospitality, because it's a totally lost art in our culture. It's not something that we, that we typically see and experience uh, even within the church. And so the question, that we, the, the, the challenge, I guess, that comes with that is, our family, or you personally, you individually, that we have to say, I'm going to stop certain ways of thinking, certain habits that are not uh, reflective of the mission of God that he's given to me, and we're going to embrace other habits in their place. For us, it's, it's, it's like saying this, we're going to make it a habit and a practice to invite others into our home, into our sphere, to bless them, to get to know them, to share a meal with them, and to share the hope that is within us. I'd encourage you to do the same, to take it upon yourself. It doesn't have to happen every week, but I'd encourage that in you if you don't have a clear and defined sense of regular mission already. Because I think this would, I think this will for our, for our family, for me, it's going to be life-changing. I know it will be. Even as difficult as it may be, as much as it may challenge my heart, it's going to be a wonderful thing. And, and I, it's, going to, it's going to challenge us also to level to the ground the excuses that keep us from it. Like, I don't know how to cook, and I don't. We'll just have to order pizza. Right? My wife can cook, but listen, if you don't know how to cook, order pizza. Or go out with somebody, meet somebody out, right? Get rid of that excuse. Uh, we don't have the budget for this. Take money that you might normally give to the church and put it toward this instead. And I mean that. I'm serious. Whatever it takes. Bring your receipts to me. We'll figure it out. I mean it, if you're really willing to do it. Okay? Don't let that become an issue. Uh, y'all, Harvest Church will reach more people far more deeply if all of us saw ourselves as engaged in the harvest work of Jesus. 
Harvest Church will reach far more people far more deeply if we all took it upon ourselves to say, this is not the exclusive job of the elite Christians. This is not the pastor's job merely. This is our call to live in such a way that showcases the glory and the grace of Jesus through imperfect vessels. None of us are ever going to get it all the way right, but that's no excuse to not try, to not step forward and to do it. And so if we take this upon ourselves to live in such a way that reflects the harvest mentality to the world, the church will change, your family will change, your home will change, your priorities will change, the community will start to look different because we've actually engaged the work that God has given us to do. For some of us, when I talk about having people over to your house, that's easy, you're great at it, you do it all the time, you've been doing it for years, and I hope in that case that we'll take time to learn from you. But for a lot of us, you're more like me, and it's a very intimidating thought. It's very intimidating. And you're sitting here thinking right now, you're like me, you're thinking through all the excuses that, that I have that, that you know, we, we uh, gosh, we're so busy already, we're so busy, we're so exhausted, the house is a mess, the kids are always running around half naked, if we're lucky, half naked, <laughs> on a good day, we're tired from work, you know, if, if, if I'm left to myself, I'll come up with a hundred excuses and they'll all be legitimate and I'll never actually get around to it. Let me encourage you in this as we close. What Jesus is calling us to, again, this is my specific application, the hospitality thing. Jesus doesn't mention that in this scripture, okay? Although I do think it, it might be a powerful witness. Here's what Jesus is saying, ultimately. He's saying, verse 36, look at verse 36 again. He who sows and reaps rejoice together. When Jesus calls you into the harvest, into the mission of God, he's not trying to ruin your life. He's not trying to heap guilt onto you for all the things you're not doing or not doing good enough. What he's saying is right here. He's saying, I'm calling you to joy. Both the sower of the seed and the one who reaps the seed, they rejoice together. What greater joy could there possibly be for a Christian than to engage the mission that Jesus Christ has called us into to partner with him in the eternal work of his salvation for the forgiveness of sin and for the discipleship of those that we come into contact with? How in the world could we apply ourselves to a greater and more significant ambition than that? There's no greater joy, John said, than to know and see that my children in the faith are walking in the truth. He's calling us to joy. The story ends, you know, I'd be ashamed to, to skip over how the story ends here in John chapter 4, because really the woman in the story fulfills the application the disciples get the lesson. We're getting the lesson today. The woman is actually living the lesson out. You see how it ends, verse 39? From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So this woman, we talked about her a little bit, this woman is, by all accounts, completely discredited. Oh my goodness. You know, we talked about the culture of the day. Three things working against her. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's immoral. In that day and age, that's three strikes. She's out. How could a person like this have any credible witness for Jesus? And yet she's the model here, isn't she? She didn't know much, but what she knew and what she experienced, she took back and she brought these people to see this man for themselves. And because of her testimony, because of her devotion 
to help others experience what she had experienced, there are now countless, potentially countless, generations of Samaritans in heaven because of the influence of this woman who did not keep her experience to herself, who did not say, wasn't that nice? Wasn't he nice? No, she, she implored others to see him, and now there are many who populate heaven because of this woman's ministry. Y'all, the, the measure of, of success at Harvest Church is, is never going to be, let's see how many people we can get in the room on a Sunday. It's just not how we, it's not, our, our, it's not what we say is successful for us. Nor is it for the, that we all get together and feel good about ourselves and how religious we are. We pat ourselves on the back and we'll see you next Sunday. No, we're, we're here because we are trophies, products of grace. None of us deserves to be in this room. We didn't earn our way in here. God has graciously loved us and saved us. That's why we're here. And our measure of success is not to sit around and feel good about that merely, but to let that propel us now into the world. That God has given us a measure of influence, a circle of opportunity. Everywhere we go, everything we do, the time is opportune. The harvest is here if we'll simply lift up our eyes and look. And so the measure of our success is this. Collectively, can we as a church take it upon ourselves to live in such a way that the harvest is at the front of our minds? That we spend, that I spend more time looking out the window than I do looking in the mirror. That I'm less inclined to want to improve myself spiritually and I'm more inclined to say, God, use me for your harvest and your glory. Um, That's our goal. That's our hope. Our prayer is that we would all get it and that together we would have a far greater impact than any of us could alone. Um, God has called us to joyfully sow and reap together, to plant the seed. Even if you never see the fruit, someone one day might, and you will rejoice with them nonetheless. This is eternally significant work we're doing, and Jesus says we do it with joy because the abundant life that we have received now like a slingshot sends us back out into the world that others might see and know him the way that we have. And that's why Jesus says to to the disciples, that's why I think he says right now to us, Kyle, lift up your eyes. Look, the fields are white for harvest. The opportunity is right here and now. It's at your fingertips. And so my resolution has to be, and I pray that yours will be this as well, that we will look outward to all the wonderful things God has called us into and that we would beg him for the courage, for the devotion, for the joy, for the endurance, and for the togetherness that it requires that 2019 might look entirely different, that I might drop the mirror in favor of the window and ask God to do a great work through me, not just in me. Can we pray? Father, I ask this morning that you would do a, um, do a convicting work. I, I hope that I have been very clear that uh, this is a struggle for me. And I just suspect it's a struggle for a lot of us, maybe all of us. That it's the most natural thing is to look inward and to stay there. When, Jesus, you have called us to something so much more, more wonderful, more joyful, more pressing, more urgent, more eternal. And so, Father, would you grant us in these moments a healthy conviction, not a guilt trip, but a, but a conviction that we, 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 we evaluate 
our lives, we eva- I evaluate my own ambitions and just see how they align. Is it my ambition today, is it my ambition this year to live my life for others that they might see and come to know you? And Father, if it's not, then I pray that you'd correct us in that today. Because we may, we may improve this year in many ways, but never actually come to the place of living, sowing, reaping in your harvest. And Lord, that is, the, that is the call of the church. So Father, correct us where we've missed it. Encourage us, Lord, where we're insecure. I, I think probably a lot of us are, are just convinced we can't do this. Well, if that woman did it, that woman who had no business being a witness for Jesus in, in, the, in the eyes of her neighbors, and yet, Lord, she is a... Um, uh, I, I think we'll look forward to meeting her in heaven. We'll look up to her. Whereas morally, we might look down on her if she were sitting here in front of us. In heaven, I think we'll esteem this woman for setting the example and showing us what it's like. So give us the courage, the joy, give us the devotion that is required that we might give our lives to your mission and your purpose and that you give us joy uh, to, to do it together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.